Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, I'm Sue from the South and Mindrum Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh and we are recording our 10th psychological, very exciting. Um, today I'm talking to Dr. Uma Tasib from the University of York and he's going to be talking to me about a paper that was looking at trajectories of prosociality from early to middle childhood in children at risk of developmental language disorder. Um, so welcome, Uma. It's really nice to talk to you today. Thank you, Sue. Thank you for having me. Not at all. So um, I'm sure there's some words in that title that we will want to unpick in a moment, but perhaps you could start by just telling me um, what your kind of key discovery was, do you think, in this particular piece of work? So what we found was that children at risk of this disorder are on the whole quite pro-social, but they're having sharing and caring, and it's not something that they necessarily struggle with. They do do slightly worse than children without disability, um, but on the whole, they're still within the, what we call the normal range. Great. So we've got a good news story here about um, pro-sociality. So you mentioned there some um, examples, but could you expand a little bit on, on what we mean by pro-social when we're talking about that as psychologists? Yes. So um, it, it's quite a broad term, um, but within our study, we were specifically interested in um, when children share toys or help other children who are maybe upset or hurt. Um, or, sharing, uh, or showing caring behaviour towards other people. Um, and it, it's a parent report measure that we ask parents to um, indicate which pro-social behaviours uh, their child um, shows during a given time point. Amazing. Um, and so then you mentioned as well these were kids at risk of developmental language disorder, and that's, I know, quite a common condition, but relatively... Um, unknown, I think, in the public domain. It's certainly not talked about as much as things like autism and ADHD. So perhaps you could just take a moment to describe what developmental language disorder is and, and what you mean by children at risk in this context. Yes, so a developmental language disorder is a disorder where children have difficulties in understanding and using spoken language. It affects approximately 5-7% of school-age children, so it's much more prevalent than autism. Um, but a lot of the time it goes unrecognised just because um, the children might exhibit other types of problems which are not necessarily uh, seen as language or behavioural problems or other types of mental health difficulties. Um, and the reason why we've called it children at risk of developmental language disorder is because we use uh, the samples we weren't able to do a, a clinical diagnosis of developmental language disorder. We just used uh, an existing sample, which I'll go and talk about a bit later on. Um, and so we, we, we couldn't be sure that these kids definitely had developmental language disorder, but right. um, the measures that we had, we could say that they were at risk of developmental language disorder. Right, okay. And so so tell us a little bit then about what motivated you to be looking at pro-sociality in this group. Is this something that has been much studied before, or is it quite so, new territory? Well, it's relatively new. We know that children with developmental language disorder tend to have poor mental health compared to children without developmental language disorder. Um, and we also know that pro-social behaviours are associated with better mental health in children in general. Um, so what we were interested in 
see whether pro-social behaviors um, in children with developmental language disorder, how they develop, um, and whether that development is associated with your mental health difficulties. Mm -hmm. And that's important because um, it's the first step towards understanding whether interventions focused on pro-social behaviors can be used to reduce the prevalence of mental health difficulties in children with developmental language disorder. Right, right. So, so it's all about preventing mental health difficulties and, and sort of investigating whether pro-sociality could be a good target in that kind of process. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose um, with mental health difficulties, um, there are probably a, a number of things that can help. And we, we just picked up on pro-social behaviours because there's some evidence that in the general population, pro-social behaviours are helpful. And we were interested to see whether they are particularly helpful in children at risk of developmental language disorder. Um, and I suppose it's more interesting for children with developmental language disorder because because of their problems with using language, they might not be able to access other types of mental health support that are reliant on mm -hmm. the use. So if we can try and find things or identify things that don't necessarily rely on language that could also help support mental health, um, then it might be particularly helpful for children with DLD. Right. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And so, um, so tell me a bit about the methods that you use to look at that. You've mentioned trajectories in your title, and I'm wondering if you managed to pull off a longitudinal study, but that's that's obviously very hard to get funding and resources for. So tell me about what you did. So we were quite lucky. So we used data from an existing cohort, um, so that's from the uh, UK-based Millennium Cohort Study. Um, and what that is, is the, around the year 2000, 2002, um, the, the Millennium Cohort Study a representative sample of about 19,000 children who were born in the UK. Um, and then they followed those children throughout childhood. Um, and there were multiple times where parents were asked to complete questionnaires and children were asked to take part in certain tasks. Um, and what we did was we took the data from the age of five, so when the kids were five years old, um, they completed a brief language assessment and their parents were also asked to um, report on any language concerns that they had about their children's language development. And then we used that data from those language questions um, to identify the children at risk of DLD. Um, and then we also use the longitudinal data on pro-social behaviour from the age of 5, 7 and 11. So it was the same families that were followed over a period of time. So we did have a, um, a longitudinal approach where the same group of children and families were followed over a, a number of years. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Once we identified the group of children who were at risk of DLD, um, then we looked to see how their trajectory of pro-social behaviour compared to children without DLD, but also how groups of children change differently over time, irrespective of whether they have DLD or not. Oh, right. So, so can you tell me a bit more about some of the patterns then that emerged from the data? Um, yes. So, um, so we used a technique called um, latent class growth curve analysis, which takes a group of a population, for example, and identifies how some subgroups of children change in a, in a similar way over time. Um, and what we found was were, I'm gonna get it, there were uh, four groups of children, um, and the four groups were stable high. So what that meant was children who started off quite pro-social at the age of five and continued to be pro-social at the age of 11. Um, there was a decreasing group, so children who were quite pro-social at the age of five, by the time they got to the age of 11, they weren't so pro-social. 
um, and then we had a facing group, um, two of them who were relatively pro-social at the age of five, and by the time they got to the age of 11, they were highly pro-social, um, and then we mm -hmm. got a group that was consistently quite low, um, mm -hmm. relative to others, so they did stable at the lower end of the um, pro-social scale. But all of the groups were within, again, what we call the normal range, and um, there, there wasn't a group that was um, at the point where it was a, a cause for concern, um, they wow. just varied going up, down, or staying stable within the normal range. And so, so I've never done one of those growth curve analyses, but if I, if I have understood it correctly, what you're doing then is comparing the, the, the shape of the pathway that the children are following rather than where they are at five years old and where they are at seven years old and where they are at 11 years old, right? It, it's all about the sort of the trajectory, as you say in your paper, you know, the kind of journey that they're on. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a data-driven approach. So um, the the models take the data and look to see how groups of children change. So yeah, it's about, it allows the children to increase over time, decrease over time, or stay the same. And yeah, mm -hmm. it is, yeah, so it's not necessarily looking at age 5, age 7, age 11, but it's the growth or the change as a whole, the group mm -hmm. over time. And so what do you think are the implications for this work? You know, what do you think we can learn from this? I suppose specifically in relation to developmental language disorder, but, but perhaps also more generally about, you know, pro-sociality and the development of that in children. Um, well, I think for me what's important is we learned that pro-social behaviours are potentially quite important in the CLD. Um, so... So what we found is that children with DLD who are pro-social tend to have fewer mental health difficulties. Um, and if future research can establish that there's a causal effect between pro-social behavior and mental health difficulties, um, then interventions aimed at promoting pro-social behaviors might go on then to reduce um, mental health difficulties. And like I said earlier, it's, it's particularly important for children with DLD who might not be able to access um, support for mental health that relies on language. So identifying mm -hmm. process of behaviors as a potential for intervention um, would be mm -hmm. um, interesting. I think that's the key thing that I would take from this study. Mm -hmm. And what about that group of children who have got sort of declining pro-sociality over time? You know, do you have any any um, insights or thoughts about what might be causing that to happen? I could imagine that there could be maturational effects where, you know, the, the 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 level of behaviour that is required to be thought of as pro-social when you're five, you know, the, the standards rise around you. So those children are not necessarily becoming less pro-social. They're simply kind of staying in the same place while everyone else's expectations move on. You know, do you have any thoughts about who that group is and, and what's their, what's the story behind that? Um. Well, I should start by saying that was a very small proportion of our overall sample. So that was 3% of the sample um, who followed that decreasing to slightly low trajectory. Um, and for the most part, everybody else was in the, the, the rest of the trajectory. Um, and, and I think although we didn't look specifically at what that group, who that group consists of, um, what we did find was important, um, and I suppose I should touch on this, is the level of pro-social behaviour that changed over time. Um, 
it was your current, it's the current, for those children, it's the current levels of social behavior that are most important for them to have a look at health rather than what they did before. So I suppose for that group, um, who have a decreasing levels of social behavior, uh, in earlier childhood, their levels of mental health difficulties might be lower, um, whereas in later childhood, as their process of behaviour decreases, their levels of mental health difficulties might also increase. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. Um, so, um, so what do you want to do next? Have you got another um, Millennium Cohort analysis up your sleeve, or are you moving this forward in a different direction? So um, I think the next step would really be about establishing causality. So we know that right. these two things are related, um, and we also now know that these two things are related to mental health and social behavior are related in samples of children with DLD, um, and we've looked at it in a particularly young age group. So the next step is to establish whether increases in pro-social behavior lead to decreases in mental health difficulties. And of course, ideally, we want to do some sort of randomized control trial, but I feel like we're quite a bit away from that, and I think we just need more research to really try and understand um, what what the extent of the association between the two, whether it varies for different groups, whether it varies for different language uh, within BLD, uh, different subtypes. Um, and I suppose the next step really would be to carry on using the existing data that we have um, and use some causal inference modeling to some more um, statistical techniques that allow us to draw uh, more causal inferences before we can do some randomized control trials. Mm. And I think I think that reveals a really important point actually that's maybe worth emphasizing, which is you know people can be frustrated at the, the slow pace of translation of research into practice, right? But at the same time, you know, a good well-powered randomized controlled trial costs a huge amount of money. It requires investment from a large number of people and especially, of course, all the participating families and young people and so on. And to to go into that prematurely before having fully, you know, sort of um, really ascertain the right target and the right population is really irresponsible. So I think you're, I think you're right to be taking that sort of step-by-step approach, but but I do, I do sometimes feel like this is one of the things that that can be frustrating for people outside research is to sort of see how, you know, incremental <laughs> um, our, our progress is. Yeah, and I think also what's important there is processor behaviour is just one aspect that could potentially be targeted. And I suppose what we really need to figure out is to what, how much of a difference would it make to um, mental health difficulties in this sample because it might be that there are other things which are cheaper to uh, or more efficient or quicker or easier uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. to implement that would have more of an effect. Um, so I yeah. suppose resting the research on social behaviour and mental health would be one line, but also trying to investigate the other things that could help as well um, so we could have a, um, yeah, a fully, formed, fully informed intervention rather than uh-huh. one one of the aspects that we've been looking at. Mm, absolutely. So, um, Emma, that was really fascinating. Before we finish, I was asked people if they've got any advice for any students or early career researchers who might be listening and perhaps 
uh, given the the global situation, perhaps be feeling particularly in need of some words of wisdom at the moment. So have you got anything that you would like to share with those people in our in our audience? Yes, I would say that if you have uh, a knack for that, um, then try and learn some new techniques and develop your skills in this area because, firstly, I just think statistics are just a lot of fun. Um, and secondly, I think if you're able to do analysis over and above like the standard annual row regression, for example, then it probably, I feel like it opens up a lot more doors for you, uh, whether that's employment opportunities, collaborations, or just being able to just get on and use existing data and do some analysis and, and write a paper, which I feel like helps your career anyway. Um, so yeah, I would say if, if, if you're into it and you like it, learn some statistical modeling techniques. And it doesn't have to be anything extravagant or exciting. Um, it's just learning something new that you don't already know always helps. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's an excellent piece of advice. And and I think as well, it's, it's not just about um, your own analyses and your papers, but also your ability to make sense of the literature. Because as those analyses, analyses become more and more a part of how we're kind of exploring um, understanding development, you know, you really need the critical skills to understand them and to, you know, to understand the assumptions that underpin them and the, you know, how how robust the, the results are and, and any kind of limitations on them. And that's something where I feel sometimes at a disadvantage because I don't have super sophisticated stats knowledge and I don't now have a huge amount of time for, for developing that knowledge. So, yeah, I think yeah. that's a great piece of advice. And I thought one, one final thing, one of my previous mentors once said to me, you should try and learn and use a new analysis technique in each paper that you write which I think is really optimistic, and I just don't do that, and I can't do that. So I try and, I try and do it for like uh, any papers that I think we could try and apply a new analysis technique to, and in that way, it gets you to learn it as well and then apply it in the paper rather than just learn it and not do anything with it. Yeah, that is a great piece of advice. As you say, it's a bit of a stretch, but, you know, it's good to have goals. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time, Uma. This was fantastic. Um, for anyone listening, you'll be able to find out more about the work we've been discussing by following the links on the podcast page, which is at ed.ac.uk forward slash Salverson dash research. And it just remains for me to thank you, Uma, for joining me today and thank everyone who is listening. Thank you. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly.